Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us now. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. Thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. This doesn't look right. They got close enough where he said he could see. Why, hello, Adam. Well, hello, Rob. Hello, everybody else. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Um, today, we're going to talk about all kinds of interesting stuff for a little while here. I cannot remember the name of the book that I was supposed to read and did not. <laughs> <laughs> holy blood, holy, holy blood, holy grail. Holy blood, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we do have uh, Doctor Heiser on tonight. Yes. Uh, we're going to talk to him. And being that it's you know Easter time, I don't know if this show is going to post Easter Day or it might post like East the day after Easter, but somewhere you know generally around Easter time, uh, we're going to have this have this show posted. Uh, of course, we're recording this about a week out. We're actually doing the interview with him on a Wednesday night, so we decided on tonight Sunday we would uh, we would uh, go ahead and record this section. Uh, don't have Luke, but that's okay. I think he's working. I don't know. He was presumably here for the last episode, but we don't know that yet for sure. Yeah, that's true. Because we're we time traveling. Again. Yeah, we don't know that. We don't know that. He may or may not have been on the last episode. <laughs> so if you're hearing this, and uh, if you heard episode, where are we on? Like 158, 159. If you heard episode 158 and he was on there, then you know that Luke, the mythical creature, showed up to be here. So, yeah. 
<laughs> Good point. It's getting really it's getting really complicated <laughs> right now doing these like weird pre-records. You do feel, kind of feel like you're pre- like you're uh like you're time traveling. And if there's and, and if there's war with Russia, nobody will probably ever get to hear this anyway. Oh, that's true. So, yeah. yeah. And we might be just like broadcasting to a nuclear wasteland. <laughs> that's a possibility. Sorry. I laugh when I'm nervous. But I'm sure that we talked about that uh I'm sure that we talked about that in the next show. Yes, I'm sure that we are we have, that well, we did are about to or something. Done. Man, this is more confusing than Back to the Future, <laughs> man. Time travel um, grammar is just confusing. Yes, I understand what I'm trying to say. I just <laughs> don't know how to speak. What's your favorite time travel movie? Just as an aside. Um. Oh God. What's one that's like really complex for you? There's a lot of decent ones. There was this one I was thinking about the other day. I don't know the name of it, but I'm pretty sure. I watched it when I was little. I'm pretty sure it starred uh, Christopher Reeves. Oh, Somewhere in Time. Is that what it's called? Yeah. And yeah. he's like, you know, he goes back in time. Like he meditates to, to go back in time or right. something weird. Yeah, and like yeah, to yeah, meet, yeah. To, to uh-huh. hook up with this girl that he's like fall in love with or whatever. And then like he pulls a penny from the future of his pocket and that like takes him back and yeah the penny from the year 1979 yeah which it was i just, guess would have been the future of when the movie was made yeah for 1912 which was the year he was in that was a good one and that one just like that one stuck with me just cuz the ending was so sad yeah <laughs> like, yeah well yeah like like it, you know well, you know, spoiler but i guess you know you know it's over almost 40 year old movie so right but like yeah he like dies and wastes away because he's so depressed trying to, back, because trying to go he, back in time again yeah. he wanted to go back to be with this woman in 1912 and like at the beginning of the movie she had uh met him um in like she encountered him in the future which was his present and she says like is he's an old woman says come back to me and he doesn't know who she is so that like causes him to study who she is because he was like doing some theater thing and she comes up to him after that and says, come back to me. And he's like, well, who is this lady? And he finds out that she died and uh, he starts to look into her and find out that she's an actress and she played in the same in, in like in the theater in the same like little resort town that he was in. And like, so he like talks to this weird guy and, the guy's like, well, yeah, you can meditate and you can go back in time and like, but don't bring anything with you. You're not supposed to bring anything that will remind you of your present, which is the future mm-hmm. <clears throat> with you, or you'll be, uh, or you'll go back, which I, I don't know exactly how that works. But anyway, <laughs> for the frame of the movie, it that's the how movie. it works, yeah. right? So then he... So then, like, he's, like, doing a magic trick or something with her. They're, like, having breakfast together after, you know, they've, you know, done the deed the night before. And he, like, pulls out the penny. And it's, like, says 1979 on it. And I remember, like, that was a freaky part of the movie because he looks at it and he's, like, oh, shit. Yeah. And you, you see his face. And then, like, you see, like, you see, like, her. And it's, like, this swirling motion. She's, like, where are you going? <laughs> or something weird like that. I watched one uh, that was just, like, a really terrible ripoff of the butterfly effect. You remember the butterfly effect with Ashton Kutcher, which actually yeah, is a pretty decent that, movie. That was a decent movie. Actually a pretty decent movie. Uh, the end was a little iffy, but but it was called project almanac and it was like this MTV movie. And it was like these teenagers and they were, 
they find like this little device that the kid's dad had worked on and he figures out that he had been in the past cuz he had in the past cuz he had this footage of his like birthday party at like nine years old or something like the day his dad disappeared right i and he think sees i remember himself this. in the yeah, camera it's, it's, it's like one of these found footage movies <laughs> yeah i did which, see which this. i hate i'm so tired yeah. of those things and uh but he just like at a certain point it just began to make no sense it just it just made absolutely no sense at all yeah and you start to be like, well, what's going on? You know, it's like they didn't really have it. They didn't even think about it, like in a literal, fa- literal fashion. Party major, foul. Major party foul. <laughs> I think my favorite time travel story, though, is from um, my favorite book, which is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. You read any of that? I've never read it, but I've seen the movie. Oh, man. It's so brilliant. Well, it's like six books long. And throughout the, there's this, you know, um, Marvin, the uh, manic depressive robot uh-huh. from the story well throughout the course of these six books he um like they'll travel back in time and forget him but then like go back and pick him up in the future like billions of years later and he's just sitting there waiting for him because he's a robot and you know he's <laughs> it just makes him extra depressed by the end of the by the end of the series he's like three times as old as the earth itself because of all these like time travel mishaps and like, <laughs> he just you can't help but really feel bad for the guy well have you seen interstellar yeah there's a part in there where they, they go down to that planet with like the waves and like the way that it's so close to, uh, Go it's so it. close to that black hole that it has like its own time. Right. And like they're there for like time dilation or whatever. Yeah. There's like, like real serious time dilation. So they leave the one guy up in the, in the, in the main spacecraft and they take their landing thing right. down to that planet. They're there for and like 10 minutes and it's, yeah, I think they're there for like, like 30, 40 like minutes. decades or something have passed. And he, he comes back, and they come back, and uh, the guy says, well, wh- he, he says, it's been 22 years. And I'm like, oh, that's freaky, dude. Yeah. Like, that guy's been on the ship for like 22 years. Just alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for his friends to come back. That's crazy. That's crazy. Uh, well, I mean, as promised, uh, I actually was going to talk about something. Uh, we kind of got sidetracked with the time travel discussion with... Pretty cool discussion to have. Um, since it is Easter, I kind of wanted to discuss the the whole Da Vinci Code thing. Um, this, of course, if anybody doesn't know, this is this whole idea that uh, Jesus was married and had kids. And there's like this whole mythology around around this, um, and of course the Da Vinci Code is really kind of like a copy of another book. It's a fictionalized version of another book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. <laughs> Are you familiar with hmm. that, Rob? Um, just I've heard you talk a lot about it on the show with other guests. Yeah. Um, so I don't. I don't know a whole lot about it other than the fact that they um, posed that there was a bloodline that descended from Jesus that right. has come down through the ages and is still out there. And then that's where Dan Brown kind of picked up on. Right, right. Um, we talked a little bit about this way back, man, like two years ago with, uh, God, it's been that long, with Tr- with Tracy Twyman, who yeah, I still love to get back on the show some at some point. Because she's kind of an expert on the whole... Priory of Scion thing. 
that's um, yeah, that's the okay. I was trying to think of. Wasn't there like the um? Isn't there the theory that like the Knights Templar had something to do with guarding this bloodline and def- protecting right, them? That's part of the theory too. Um, the way this whole thing starts, as I understand it, and I've read Holy Blood, Holy Grail. I'm going to say probably at least about two to three times. I remember just like absolutely loving and devouring that book because it was just such a different, you know, all these, it had all these great things like, you know, unknown history, secret societies, conspiracies about Jesus, uh, conspiracies about other things, royal bloodlines, all uh, talking about the grail legends. There's so much to it. Right. And so the way that it starts is these three journalists, they were in Britain. It was Michael Bajent, Richard Lee, Henry Lincoln. Okay. Those three guys, they were working on a show called Chronicle for the BBC. And they discovered this mystery in this small little village in the south of France called Rennes-le-Chateau. And mostly what this had to do with was this parish priest that had supposedly found these relics that had all these weird um, writings on them, um, just just strange stuff. And apparently this parish priest who supposedly only made his um only made his like salary, his priest salary, had all this money and nobody knew where they came where it came from. So these three journalists, these guys look at this and they think, okay, this is weird. What what is this all about? And they start looking into groups like the Knights Templar. They start looking into the Cathars, which was this weird, heretical, uh, dualistic, Gnostic sect that was was centered in the south of France. Okay. Um, and which Monsegur, the last realm of the... The last... Uh, stronghold of the Cathars was in this same area, the same general area. So this, they had this idea that basically that the Cathars and the Templars were protecting what they saw as the Holy Grail and trying to find out what that is. Okay. Now at the same time, they're in Paris and they find in well first of all there was a there was another author that had written about it in the 60s in France about some of these same aspects about the Rennes Chateau mystery about what it meant and apparently there were these documents that were called the dossier secrets which were somewhere in the national library of France okay they were just like deposited there and in these documents, they had all these genealogies. Uh, they had these lists of 
grand of grandmasters, which were supposedly the grandmasters of a society called the Priory of Scion. Uh, okay. And there was this secret society that was supposedly had existed since the Middle Ages that protected some kind of secret. And all these, there were famous men that were involved with it, like Leonardo da Vinci was on the list, Isaac Newton was on the list. Uh, There were several other, like I think Raphael or Michelangelo was on the list, if if I remember correctly. I'd have to look it up. But, so they had this strange list that had both famous names and then not so famous names. And most of the Ninja Turtles. Yeah, the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> right. <laughs> and one of the last Grandmasters, I think you had Claude Debussy, Victor Hugo, okay, uh, Jean Cocteau, who was um, what we talked about with, um, we mentioned a little bit about that briefly with Tracy Twyman when we spoke to her, who was this French surrealist in the early 20th Think to, into the mid 20th century. In fact, you know, we just had the Beauty and the Beast movie come out not long ago, and he actually did a version of that at the time. I think about in the 50s or the 60s. So he was supposedly this, the grandmaster of this Priory of Scion, whatever it is. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and they find out through. Now, were they looking for this, or did these same people just happen to stumble upon? I think they were looking for it because there had been another book that has what that was written in France that had not been translated into English that was about the Ren La Chateau mystery. And that author wrote about these dossiers secrets, and then they went, these guys went to Paris and they looked into it. Okay. Right. Um, well, they find out that the Priory of Scion still exists, okay? And the Grand Master now is this guy named Pierre Plantard. And Pierre Plantard supposedly um, traces his lineage back to the Merovingian dynasty. And they find out that the Merovingian dynasty is being protected by the Priory of Scion. And the Merovingian dynasty was the first dynasty of France, medieval France, or like the kingdom of the Franks, what would later become France, if that makes sense. And uh, so what's the significance there with the Merovingian dynasty? Why is that so important to them? So they ask these questions, right? And they start to look at it. And they say, okay, well, let's look at the history of the Knights Templar. What's up with them? And they begin to look at the history of the Knights Templar, and they say, and they say, okay, we think in the documents there's this whole idea that the Knights Templar and the Priory of Sion were once the same thing, okay? And it was formed during the First Crusade. This gets all really complicated, all right? So <laughs> no, I'm, I'm following, I'm following. Bear with me. <laughs> during, the first, during the First Crusade, 
there was a leader named Godfrey of Bolin, okay, who was the first king of Jerusalem. Okay, because, you know, in the First Crusade, they took over the Holy Land from the Muslims. Yeah. In other words, nothing has really changed in about a thousand years. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> they believe that the, the, the Knights Templar and the Priory of Sion were formed at the same time together. And that Godfrey of Bolin has Merovingian blood. Right? And... He's their proclaimed king of Jerusalem. Well, he dies like a year later, and his brother becomes king of Jerusalem. And it goes through the bloodline, and it gets real complex. Uh, so eventually, about like 1188 or something like that, I think is the date, the Priory of Sion and the Knights Templar split. Like they have some kind of disagreement, and they split. The Knights Templar last till about 1314 until when they get um, basically persecuted by the King of France and their money is confiscated, mostly because the King of France owes them money. And then you have the whole Baphomet thing where they're supposedly they're kissing each other on the anus and uh, worshiping a head that they call Baphomet. Right, but in reality, we they were about. they were writing loans. They were the first like organized bank to do that. Exactly, kind of thing, they, they they were like one of the first <clears throat> organized banking because you could you could actually put money into a Templar vault, and they would give you a piece of paper that says, "Well, you can go to this okay if you're in France, you can go to Germany and you can pull out this money." And this piece of paper allows right. you to do that. So they were one of the first innovators along that line. And they had an they had an enormous amount of power, right? And the king of France was jealous of that, and so he basically conspired with the Pope, who wasn't happy with him either, and got them pretty much disbanded, persecuted, Orchard executed. Yeah. However, as I'm sure Scott Walter would be happy to tell you, uh, they do survive in certain places. Um, they survive in Portugal. They become, I think, the Order of Christ. They just changed their name because the King of Portugal wasn't willing to. He wasn't willing to go along, but he said, "Well, you got to change your name." And in one other significant place that they survive is in Scotland. Okay, and what they do there is they go underground. And actually, the same a couple of the same authors, I think, Bajan and Lee wrote a book called. Uh, Temple in the Lodge, where they kind of trace the origins of Freemasonry back to the Knights Templar. And there's a lot of Freemasons that would be happy to tell you that they do come from the Knights Templar, the Knights Templar that survived in Scotland. And that's where you get, you've read Da Vinci Code. Yes. And remember, there's the Roslyn Chapel yep. in Da Vinci Code. Well, that's basically speculated to have been built by runaway Knights Templars about a century later. And then you have this whole thing about the Sinclairs, which figure into the Priory of Sion mythos as well. The Sinclairs going over to America and taking the Templar stuff. We've talked a lot about this, like Walter Bosley too. And I think we talked a little bit about with Scott Walter, but so there's that whole, that whole tangent. Okay. So back to Godfrey of Boleyn 
and his brother, I think Baldwin the first. So they become king of Jerusalem. And so you have this priory of Sion, and at the time the Knights Templars kind of protecting them in as it's been um put down by the dossier secrets. And supposedly through this complicated bloodline, you it goes back to the Merovingian dynasty. So they're looking at it and they're saying, what is uh why is that so important? What's supposedly this connection between the Merovingian dynasty and these guys that later on, about four hundred years later, become the kings of Jerusalem? Why are they so important? Is there some kind of link to where they could actually be the rightful kings of Jerusalem? Okay. See where I'm going with this? Yeah. And because so you've got you can trace it all the way back through Jesus to like David. Yeah. So they be, right. So they begin to look at this and they say, so what's so important? What are they protecting here? So the guys do this kind of little language interesting language thing where they look at the term for Holy Grail and at the same time right after the crusade right during the crusades and right after there's this whole flourishing of Grail literature okay you've got Parsifal you have um, which is uh, I think what is it Wolfram von Eschenbach you have all these Grail poems Grail literature um, you know, basically Percival is looking for the grail for King Arthur. The King Arthur mythos um comes up at the same around the same time. That later develops into, you know, what we know today about, you know, the King Arthur myth, basically the, the legend. So that develops at the same time. So they're looking at that and they're saying, so what's important about this term holy grail? What does this mean? What's the what does it mean? You know the the association in the in the Last Supper, the baptism, uh, not the baptism, but during the Last Supper where he says, you know, the drink this. This is the blood of my blood, uh, so are, are and the they, bread is my body. And they, and they drink and supposedly the Holy Grail is the cup used right. at the Last Supper. Are they implying that's not the case? Well, what they're looking at is they say, okay, the term Sand Grail, which means Holy Grail. Okay, and they do this kind of weird wordplay with the Latin. And they say, no, actually, the word is split in the wrong place. It means sang, S-A-N-G, real. Okay, and they say sang is Latin for, for blood. In fact, you know, knowing a lot of people that speak Portuguese, sangue is blood. So I knew that from Latin. Um, and real is royal. So they say royal blood, holy grail, holy blood, basically is what they're saying. Ah. Okay, that's that's that's, that's what they there. do. Nice, that's what nice. they do. So they go through this, and then they make this giant leap, and they say the Merovingians... One aspect of them is that they never cut their hair. And they look at Jesus of Nazareth, and a lot of people say that it's either Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus of the Nazarene. And the whole idea about the Nazarenes is they were this group in Judaism that never cut their hair. 
So they look at that. They look at this wordplay that they just did, and they say, oh, what we have here, this is the mental leap of logic. <clears throat> right. It's a huge leap, actually. But they make this leap where they say, okay, the Merovingians must be descended from Christ. See, and I'm okay with big leaps, provided you don't say words like must. <laughs> you know, it must be aliens. It right. must be. You know. Right. How about, so this is interesting. Perhaps this could be true. Because it is an interesting theory. And so there's this idea. There's this legend. There's this tradition that Mary Magdalene, okay, took the Holy Grail. She went over with Joseph Arimathea, who was the guy who, who had owned the tomb that Jesus was put in. And later on, after the resurrection... And I guess the Ascension, Mary Magdalene goes to the south of France. In fact, there's this whole kind of like cult of the Black Virgin or Black Madonna in France. And a lot of people say that's actually Mary Magdalene. And so what Bajent Lee and Lincoln say, what they what they speculate is that remember this is all speculation. What they speculate is that she's not carrying the cup that Christ uses at the Last Supper. She's carrying, she's blood, carrying either she's pregnant or she's carrying a son or a daughter of Jesus because Mary was his wife. That's what they. That's what they come to. All right. <laughs> okay, I have a question for you, real quick. Okay. None of that bothers me, um, and I know that for some people, the idea that Jesus could have had children it seems almost blasphemous. Um, sure. But I don't know why exactly. Why is it so hard to believe that a man would be attracted to a woman and, and they could end up together? Because, I mean, we know they spent a lot of time together and were close to some degree or another. Yeah, there's... Um not in the Bible, but in some of the Gnostic Gospels, there's actually a translation. Well, I think it can be translated either way, either to close friend or like there's one translation that says uh, that calls her his spouse, right? basically. Uh, there's also in another one where it talks about him kissing her on the mouth. Why? Why is that so offensive to to some people? Just the the very idea that okay, the, uh, this is where you get into it, right? Because this this this, this was the whole you, you, this was the whole crux of the Holy Blood Holy Grail thing. This was the whole crux of the Da Vinci Code. This was the big issue. It wasn't the Priory of Sion. It wasn't the Knights Templar. It wasn't any of this other details that were in the book. It was just this one thing about Jesus marrying Mary Magdalene and having children. Right. Okay. Because that, as as Christianity developed in the early centuries, um, it was said that Jesus was sinless. In other words, in other words, for Jesus to have been the scapegoat, basically for all of human humanity's sins that he had to be sinless. So there's no, 
lust, greed, anger, even though, you know, he got pretty angry at the money changers in the temple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the, there's, there's, but that's supposedly that was righteous anger. That's usually how that's explained. What about his words on the cross? Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Yeah. I mean, that was from his mouth. <laughs> right. So, but as, well, I'm just saying, as Christianity developed, right, that's, right. that's, no, how, that. that's well, how it developed. And the, the idea of... And the, you, well, and more to that, too, like throughout the years, they the Bible was edited in specific ways to make him more godly and less human. Yeah, there's there are things about um, the debate. This is a huge debate. People died and were killed over this debate of the nature of Christ, okay? Um, is Christ more human is he more God? There were some that believed that uh, he was much more God. Some even went even further to say that Christ could, these were like really extreme Gnostics. In other words, the du- the dualists that would say that all matter is corrupt, all spiritual is good. Okay. And there were some that even went so far that say that Jesus was like this hovering ghost because to be as good as he was, he couldn't have been an, in actual physical form. Well, that was labeled a heresy. And then you had, you had another heresy called Arianism that said that Jesus was lesser than the Father. He wasn't the same as the Father. All this stuff gets really complicated. This is called Christ- Christology, and like wars and shit were fought over this, okay? You you finally got the codification of orthodoxy under Constantine in the 300s. I think we've talked a little bit about that with Zach Hunt. Yeah. But they... Um, what they did was they, you know, they came up with, okay, this is what Jesus is. But that debate still kind of lingered of how human was Christ. How much humanity did Christ have? He had to have some humanity. Okay. Otherwise, he couldn't be this bridge, as I believe, between God and humanity. He had to have humanity. So this is where this whole idea comes in. Okay. Um, 20 years before the Da Vinci Code, you had the movie Last Temptation of Christ. Martin Scorsese directed it, which was a book uh, based uh, a Greek author in the 1960s that got a lot of trouble for it. And basically in that, in that book and in the movie, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> there is, it, it, Jesus is in the desert. Okay, um, and he gets tempted by you know the the old story. Yeah, he gets tempted. You know, I'll give you Rome, and the devil says to him, "I will see you soon at Passover." Okay, this is in the book, in the film. Jesus is crucified, and this angel comes to him in like the form of this like young girl. Right. So imagine like your youngest daughter's age looking all angelic and comes to him and and says, You have just been tested. We're not really gonna crucify you, Jesus. You can come down now. Right. And she tells him, Now you can live a normal life. You've done what God wanted you to do. And he goes and takes up first with Mary Magdalene 
and then God kills her for some reason. And there's a lot of weird shit in the in, in Last Temptation of Christ. It's a very strange book. And he takes up with Mary of Bethany. And he has children. And he has grandchildren. And he actually meets the Apostle Paul, who tells him, well, you're not the Jesus that died on the cross. My Jesus is more real. And then later... He's about to die, okay? And the apostles come to him, all of them. And except for Judas, who won't come into the, Judas will not come into the room to see Jesus as he's dying. And earlier in the book, he has, there's a different um, explanation of, the, of Judas's betrayal of Jesus, where Judas... But Jesus basically tells him to set it up so that he says, because if he will, he doesn't betray him, then Jesus can't be crucified. Then salvation cannot happen. Right. And Judas comes in and he's angry at Jesus and he points his finger at him and he says, you know, you, you were supposed to die on that cross. You were supposed to be the savior of all mankind. I didn't do what I did portraying you for you to be, to be laying here just as a man. And Jesus says, you're right. And he begins to crawl out and he looks at the, he looks at the angel and then realizes that's the devil because the devil appeared in an angelic form, angelic form. Okay. And Jesus comes out and he screams to God, you know, I, I realized I was wrong because through the whole book, he's struggling with his humanity. He's struggling with his lust. He's struggling with everything that makes him human and what makes him divine. That's the, that's the, that's the theme of the book, basically. And he says, you know, I want to be crucified. You know, I want to die. And then all of a sudden he shows up and he realizes he's still on the cross and it's all a vision. And he says, it is accomplished. And he dies. And so that's, uh, so that's to illustrate that there has always been kind of this idea about Jesus, about humanity versus divinity, okay? And there are many people that, that emphasize the divinity, and they would have a problem with Jesus marrying because that means that Jesus would have sex that means that he he would commit the original sin because a lot of people see original sin as being sex in the garden of eden although there's many other ways you can interpret that okay now we're getting really deep and theological on this right right okay? right but that's okay because that's really confusing yeah. <laughs> so you know it depends on who you talk to so when da vinci code came out i remember i worked with a guy who was uh, church of christ i believe and he actually said, you know, I don't have a problem with it. Um, it doesn't really bother me. He said as long, I, th I think really what it was for him was as long as Jesus was married, that it wasn't something that was out of the rules. Because there's a lot of gray areas there, right? right? Because when they tell you, you know, the, the, the Christian teaching is, you know, there's no fornication. There's no sex out of wedlock. Okay. So 
if Jesus was married, does that necessarily mean that he was committing a sin if it was something that was a marriage? So that's a question there, right? Um, now, I had a discussion with the Canary Cry guys a few couple of years ago on this podcast, and they didn't seem to have, like Basil at least, didn't seem to have as much of a problem with that as we were talking about other things, like what Scott Walter talks about with like Jesus's bones and stuff. That's a whole other thing, because if Jesus didn't actually resurrect from the dead, then there is no salvation, that's a whole different that's a whole different aspect to it, okay? Uh so there wasn't as much of a problem with Jesus being married and having children, which as the guys in Holy Blood, Holy Grail point out, was not unusual for someone that was a rabbi, someone that was a teacher. It was customary for men to be married in that age. Um, and especially I think too, when you add Catholicism and things to the mix where priests can't get married. Okay. There's a little bit more of a problem with it, but I think it's not married as much about the marriage as it is the, as it is the sex, as it is thinking about that in a sexual way. I think that's really where people, because last temptation of Christ, the film was like, that was a huge thing. People were protesting it, all because Scorsese had put in these sex scenes, which he probably shouldn't have put in. He probably should have left that out, honestly. And I still, and I think the point was still, because it, it's a very powerful film. And it really makes you, it really, at least for me, helps you understand uh, salvation and what it means and, and the struggle of the divine to, to, to humanity. Okay, that's what... Uh, that's what Kazantzakis, the the author of it, was trying to get Pat. He was dealing with these same things in himself. Okay. All right. So I think I've lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> I derailed you. There's 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 one problem with all of this, and here's the issue: the Priory of Sion is not an ancient secret society. As a matter of fact, it only dates to about 1956 Mm. as it's registered. Because Pierre Plantard, and I can't remember the other guy's name, they actually, and they admitted it later, came up with those documents. The ones that were supposedly found in that library? And put them in the <laughs> library. Ah, uh, see? I thought there was something fishy about uh-huh. that earlier. Uh-huh. So these documents were not real as from their as per their um as per their admission. Because here's what happened. Okay, what those documents were the link between what two strands of Well, thought. they never said anything about Jesus. All the supposed quote unquote priory of Sion wanted to do was connect Pierre Plantard up with the Merovingians. Gotcha. And the Merovingians were the original dynasty of France. So that would say Pierre Plantard could say, Well, I am the rightful king 
even though you know it's been fifteen hundred years, and right. so they were connecting this guy with this other group that didn't cut exactly. their hair like the Nazarenes, which Jesus may or may not exactly, have which the guys in Holy Blood Holy Grail had made this huge leap of logic. So the huge leap of logic from the made up information. <laughs> yes. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Now yes. I'm following. However, there's other things that they they drew on, like some of the Gnostic Gospels and things like that, that they could say would be proof. Um, So it's almost like they made a point in a History Channel documentary that, like, some of the stuff about the marriage of Jesus, you know, that that could be. But then, like, the further you get in time to the present, the more it falls apart. Right. Because what happened was, was Pierre Plantard and his partner— but mostly Plantard. And Plantard was, he was like staunchly really right wing. Like he was like, I mean, like the guys you see right now in France, like Le Pen and, uh, and her group, the really staunch right wing that are t- fighting against the Muslims and St. Francis going down and all this kind of stuff. And that we talked about, but Steve Bannon's book about the, uh, oh, yeah. the saints book. Uh, yep. okay. The P- plants hard was kind of like one of these guys. He'd been in the French resistance, but before world war two, he'd been this real staunch fascist. And after world war two, he was still a fascist. So he had these ideas about these this delusions of grandeur. And he got with his other with his other partner, who was kind of like this surrealist kind of guy. Right. And Cocteau, who they said was also a member of the Priory of Scion, the Grandmaster, was a surrealist as well. So they just had this so these two guys get together and one one has one motivation and one has another motivation. And they get together and they decide, well, we're just going to, you know, give this guy a pedigree and I'm going to be able to mess around with people. And they they put they come up with these fake documents, fake list of grandmasters where they kind of like really genius stuff like they added in because like like the Holy Blood Holy Grail guys believed it because it had, you know, Famous people from history, but it also had these more obscure people. Okay. And, but, the, but it later on, they admitted it wasn't true. And then they had all these fake uh, genealogies that said, you know, connected him to the Merovingian kings. You know, so we're the, we go way back. We're the rightful rulers. Right. And they give all these cryptic interviews with the Holy Blood, Holy Grail authors. Okay. Well, Holy Blood, Holy Grail comes out. It's a big success. And Plantard is sitting there like, oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> we never said anything about being descended from Jesus. This has gone way too far. And in the next book, The Messianic Legacy, Plantard, and they're wondering why Plantard is so... Um, just kind of cryptic with them and why he's kind of like, like evasive with them because he realizes, um, I did something I never intended that th- I never intended this to happen. Okay. And later on through some other research, they find out Priory Sion is a big crock of bullshit. Now I think Tracy Twyman disagrees with that. We did talk to her about that. And when it goes back to listen to that show, I think it's episode 71, but, uh, yeah. 
So it's kind of like this whole thing that these guys, and then later the Da Vinci Code comes up, which kind of furthers the whole Priory of Sion, that whole mythos, <laughs> and right. that these guys are the protectors of the bloodline of Jesus. And uh, I can remember very early on in the, one of the shows we did with Scotty Roberts, where he talked about the Merovingians and said how... He said he told me the Merovingians claim to be descended from Jesus, and I said I don't think so, Scotty. I don't think that's right. <laughs> so all a big mess and all a big misunderstanding. However, one of the guys, Henry Lincoln, later kind of disagreed with the other two, Bajet and Lee and did his own research. He went back to Rennes-le-Chateau and began to look at the how the land is laid out, and he kind of figured out that it's like an ancient pagan temple and that there's something of great significance that is there, maybe something like what they think probably, you know, one of the many places the Ark of the Covenant is or like the, uh, the menorah, you know, that uh, was taken from Jerusalem later to Rome and then the Visigoths sack Rome 400 years later and they take it to they take it to France and that's where they bury some of this stuff and all this weird stuff is a marker and that actually the priest actually uh saved all that actually found that stuff and then the church was paying him off so he wouldn't reveal that and then they said that and that was another aspect of it too, was that you know, the reason why the priest was being paid off according to in Holy Blood, Holy Grail was because he knew the secret. He knew the secret that Jesus uh, had children and therefore the church is bullshit and Christianity is bullshit. And he knew that, you know, he knew that the secret. So the church was just paying him off. And that probably really wasn't the truth because actually what he was probably doing was he was actually, um, I think he was actually like gambling or he was charging for extra priestly services on the side, which was illegal. <laughs> ah. <laughs> see, see. So the great mystery <laughs> isn't as great a mystery as it uh, was supposedly was. So what do you think? All that aside about the hoax part, do you think there's a possibility that there are descendants of, if not Jesus, descendants of his family? Well, there's a few ways to look at that question, I think. I mean, we know that, I mean, we don't know for a fact that he didn't have siblings, even. We know it, says that, in the, it says in the Bible he had siblings. Did he? But he was just the first. James, then, the brother of Jesus. Okay. So I think, yeah, very much so. There's a good chance. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you're Catholic, you don't believe that James is actually the brother of Jesus because Mary is supposed to stay a virgin and that the whatever brothers were actually already the children of Joseph, even though it doesn't say that in the Bible— but if you're Protestant, you really have no problem with that because you say, well, you know, yeah, Mary was a virgin at the time Jesus was born, the whole virgin birth concept. Right. And then later on. 
See, they have they, they have siblings. People have these bizarre hangups about it all, and that's what I don't get. That like yeah. like that like you, you have to believe that Mary like lived her whole life a virgin in order for her to be someone. Yeah, well, that's, like, well, special well, for the church. Or, we'll get this, or he, that Jesus like was perfectly without sin, and he was this you know divine, pure spiritual being, not not a human like the rest of us. We'll we'll get this get this part. Okay, like they're the, in Catholicism, they believe that Jesus, Mary, was actually produced immaculately too. She was an immaculate conception as well, because they want to go back one more generation to say that Mary actually was not uh, that she was a virgin birth too. Why? I don't know. Makes her more special. Does it say that? Makes her more divine. Wait, I, I I don't know. Why do people? I mean. Okay. <laughs> the idea of faith is that you're believing in something because you believe in it, right? Yeah. Essentially. Right. Why do you need all that extra stuff to build up your faith then? I mean, I, I, I just don't understand that. Like that. Well, I mean, why do you need a whole huge church apparatus that has billions of dollars in a, in a bank somewhere? I mean, why do you need that too? I, I, I mean, it's just, it's just all, it's just all, why do you need all the saints? Why do you need all this? I mean, not, not dogging Catholics or anything like that, but it's just like, you definitely see that there's this huge cumbersome structure that where it should just be something simple. Yeah. Right. Well, and I, like, that's what I've always, I don't, I don't, I don't care what religion you identify with so long as it's, you know. You've looked into it and you really believe it and you kind of keep it to yourself. <laughs> like that's it's all fine, but like yeah, right. for, for me, like the the dogmatic sides of a lot of denominations are what do kind of steer me away from them. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, dogma you're going to get in any group. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think the point that I want to make here is that Eusebius, the ancient church writer, um, I think he's writing the third or fourth century A.D. But he actually writes about this group called the Desposini, which were descendants of the family of Jesus. Okay. And it is possible that those were, those people survived somewhere and that they were actually, they would have actually been descendants of King David. Right. So there is there's also the whole idea of um the exilarch. And this is when the when the Jews were taken to Babylon. Okay. And they by the Babylonian king. And then when Babylon was toppled by the Persians, Cyrus the Great, which you know Trump is supposed to be the new Cyrus. Cyrus the Great allows them to go back to the Holy Land, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Well, some of them stay in Babylon. Okay. And in matter of fact, up until very recently, with all the sectarian violence that we've had in Iraq, Iraq had one of the oldest Jewish populations in the world. That is no longer because of what has happened there. Um, in Baghdad and other places in Iraq. 
But there was this concept of the Exilarch, and what they were, they were actually descendants of, of, of David that had some kind of kingly authority, some kind of leadership authority in Babylon, in that Jewish community in Babylon. And supposedly there is a legend that sometime around 800s AD, they actually sent, because there was a substantial Jewish population in the south of France and had been for a while, up in, you know, during the Roman times, okay? And they sent this exilarch into uh, the south of France to basically rule over them. And his name was like Guillaume de Galone or something like that. Okay, so there's another possibility, and there and there's links to him to other royal families in in Europe. Okay, this is nothing to do with Jesus. This is a line that diverted off 500 years before him. Right, and so there is a possibility that yeah, there could be some kind of Davidic blood in the royal families of Europe. And it just might just be common knowledge. But what these guys did was they just said, well, it's Jesus. It's obviously Jesus that, you know. So you see what I'm getting out here? Like, it didn't have to be Jesus. It right. could have been these other guys. But that's not that's not sexy enough to sell a book. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's kind of like our Georgia Guidestones thing with Dr. Future. Like, had so many problems trying to get him on other shows just because it was some doctor. (laughs) Right. Or it wasn't, or it wasn't the Illuminati. Like other, a lot of other shows wouldn't, didn't want it on because it wasn't sexy enough. It wasn't glamorous enough. So, but if it's Jesus, well, you know, you cause a kerfuffle and a controversy and everybody's talking about it. And then Dan Brown, you know, he says, "Oh, I like that. I like that's a good plot for a book." And and Dan Brown's unapologetically fiction, right? Yeah, okay. It was a great story, and he did a good job with it. And he wasn't right. trying to like pass this off as <laughs> right, right, a possible truth. So where are we at here, sir? Fifty-five, forty, forty-one, forty-two, forty-three seconds. All right, yeah. that was in real time. That's really hard to. Do that. <laughs> 48, 49. Shit. 50. It's getting away from us, man. 52. Well, I think I've cleared that. So uh, I don't know if there's anybody that uh, is out there that has another opinion. Please let us know. Uh, feel free. Um, we're actually going to talk uh, with Dr. Heiser coming up, well, soon for all of you, all of you, but actually three days from now for us. But uh, we're going to talk to him about his book, Reversing Herman. And this has to do with the Watchers, um, the Nephilim, and how that incursion was essentially reversed by Jesus and what happened on the cross. So this is going to also be interesting. That's why I kind of wanted I wanted to talk about this aspect too because I thought you know little little theme for the night. So Rob. Tell everybody real quick where they can find where they can sign up if they want to be a Patreon. Oh yeah, you can go to our new Patreon account. Well, it's only a couple months old now, but it's patreon.com slash conspiranormal. That's you know, C O N S P I R I N O R M A L. Um starting to grab quite a group there. We're gonna start doing our our little monthly Skype cast with all of you guys. We've got t shirts we're gonna get printed up for those of you that are in that tier. And we wanna thank everybody that's already a Patreon, first of all. 
um, yeah. And remember, guys, we'll be back with Dr. Heiser, but remember this one phrase, et in Arcadia Ego. We'll be back. What if I were to tell you that the forms are not the facts? And what if I were to ask you the shape of water? Water is in a state of constant flow and flux, a paradox of weakness and strength. My name is Aaron David, and I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler. Hey guys, we're back on Conspiranormal. It's a few days later. And how you doing, Rob? I am well. How are you, sir? I'm very good. I'm sweating, but I'm good. I, I apologized already. I turned the air conditioner on. <laughs> <laughs> and as you guys can hear, we do have the uh, we do have the guest on the line, uh, someone that we're very happy to come back on at their third time on Conspiranormal. This you have, Doctor Heiser. You have joined the three guest club. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not quite sure what you get, but uh, right. Maybe, may, maybe if you, you know, maybe you yeah. come on for I a fifth time. Might get some hate mail. Yeah, maybe some hate mail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's always good. We get a lot of yeah. that. Maybe we'll get yeah. like a, a and a, we have T-shirts, so we maybe we can come up with some uh, an official conspiranormal smoking jacket or something for you. <laughs> <laughs> If you don't smoke, it's just a cool jacket. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'll I'll take a hoodie or something. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> that'll work for sure. All right, well, um, we're going to talk about your book, uh, your new book, Reversing Herman. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I was telling you in the part that people don't hear, that uh, this is uh, another of your books that I really enjoyed, really got a lot out of, uh, really helps me understand um, the Bible and what's in it, uh, just like your previous book, The Unseen Realm, uh, which is a book that I highly recommend if anybody really wants to understand certain themes and what connects uh, some thematic elements in the Bible. But this book is subtitled Enoch, the Watchers, and the Forgotten Mission of Jesus Christ. So I want to just jump into this, and mm-hmm. I, what I really want to do first is kind of define some terms, what a couple of things mean, and that is first the watchers, what mm-hmm. that is, what they are, and also the term second temple literature, what mm-hmm. that is and what it consists of. Okay. I'm surprised you didn't ask about Hermon. Your your audience is <laughs> is is beyond the normal one if they know what Hermon is. But uh, it, it's I guess it's wrapped up with the Watchers. Right, anyway, right. Watchers uh, is a term uh, used in Second Temple literature. So we might as well define that while we're at it too. Se- Second Temple Jewish literature is stuff written in the era when the Second temple in Israel was standing. So if you want to get real precise, that's like, you know, 512 BC or something like that, all the way up to 70 AD. So usually people round it off 500 BC 
to 100 AD. That, that's usually sort of broadly speaking the Second Temple period. And so you have a lot of material written uh, by Jewish thinkers, uh, Jewish leaders, writers, theologians in that period. And that naturally is partly commentary on the Old Testament. Part of it is, you know, original literature that has to do with Jewish life during the period. But the New Testament writers very evidently read a good bit of that material, especially uh, one book in particular, what we call First Enoch as scholars, more popularly known as the Book of Enoch. There's actually three books of Enoch. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, that First Enoch, the Book of Enoch is right smack dab, you know, in the middle of, of this matrix in the Second Temple period. So, in the Book of Enoch, the term watchers is used, <clears throat> excuse me, to describe the offending divine beings, the d- offending sons of God of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. That's Enoch's term for them, or at least the one he uses most often. Now, that, it's a biblical term as well. It's used in the book of Daniel. It shows up four times. Uh, so, it's not you know something completely detached in terms of vocabulary uh, from the Bible itself. But that's who the watchers are, the bad guys of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And when they descend to earth to hatch their plot, uh, Enoch has them descending to Mount Hermon. That's where Hermon comes from in the title. That's where they bind themselves with an oath to do do, do the best they can to corrupt humanity and help humanity destroy itself. Now, present day, uh, Hermon is located still in Israel, or is it kind of in a border region? Yeah, it's it's north, like in Lebanon, you know, Syria, you know that. Okay. It's it's north of the Holy Land proper, but the foot of Mount Hermon touches, you know, I guess you could say overlaps with the uh, the northern boundary of the the land that was allotted uh, to the to the Israelite tribes. Um, so it's it's right to the north of that. Okay, yeah, in the same region where we're having all these problems right now, incidentally. Yeah. Well, what goes not, what goes around comes around. Goes around, comes around. <laughs> the, yeah, the, it's the there's fir- plenty of blame to go around there, but that is that that is true. I mean, it's what's, it's part of that geography. What's the generally accepted date of the Book of Enoch? Well, t- textually, the the oldest textual evidence we have is the material found among the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, at Qumran. So that's, you know, we'll just use round numbers, 200 BC, but, you know, Mm -hmm. scholars figure, well, if we have fragments of it here from 200 BC, it's probably at least 100 years old or so. You'll see, you know, people date it to 300 BC, but again, sometime in the second temple period. Okay. And then the second and the third one, which you don't hear too much about, actually, I guess the the second one, I guess, what was it, 100s BC, and the third one was... Uh, probably in the ADs, like 100 AD or something like that. Yeah, the the other one, the other two are actually both ADs. Second Enoch is written or preserved, I should say, in Slavonic. Believe it or not, right, right. Um, there, there's actually a a recent scholarly book out on it, uh, that, and you don't have to read Slavonic for it. But there's a uh, there's a guy at Marquette who's who does read Slavonic, and um, big Second Temple Enoch guy. So he just came out with essentially a a collection of essays on that. And then the third one, I believe, is is uh, in Hebrew. And I think it's, you know, it's a little, well, it is a little later than um, the Slavonic. The original one, the oldest one, I guess I should say, 
uh, is preserved at Qumran in Aramaic. So that was probably its original composition language. Okay. But it, it survived uh, outside of the of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It wasn't found with the Dead Sea Scrolls originally, right? It was... Yeah, Enoch was known from much later uh, material. I mean, eventually, yeah. eventually it, it, you know, at, at Qumran, you only get fragments in Aramaic. Now, it was translated into Greek. So you have Greek uh, manuscript material that, that's pretty ancient. Uh, it's not the whole book, but it's, it's large portions of the book. But the book in its entirety was known to the modern West only through Ethiopic. Right. Okay. Uh, and that was you know, the Abyssinian Church, and and that's much later. That's in the modern period that 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 a copy of the full Book of Enoch in Ethiopia was actually brought to Europe. But it existed in the Ethiopian canon all the yeah. way from three hundred A.D. till na- till now, basically. So yeah, and they and they still consider it canonical. Right. Yeah. The only church that does. I, I'd be interested to find out why that is, but that I think that's for another discussion. <laughs> but uh, it, so, what is the uh, what is the ba- the basic story of the sin of the Watchers? What is that sin that they come down and do? And I know we've touched on this before, but mm-hmm. uh, I think this is important to kind of reiterate it. Yeah, they're 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 guilty of several things. I mean, the the one that gets the most attention is you know the the violation described in Genesis six one through four, you know, with the human women, and, and as I talk about in, in Unseen Realm, the the book before this one, um, there 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 are two ways that that I think you can parse that passage and still honor the the supernatural worldview uh, of the passage. I don't, you know, I think anything that doesn't um, consider the sons of God or the watchers as divine beings is deeply flawed because it, it violates the original context of those four verses, which is Mesopotamian. And Enoch, again, believe it or not, even though it's post-Old Testament, Enoch actually preserves the original context uh, of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It sounds a little odd, but if, you, know, if you want to know why, read the book. Um, but you, you've got that initial you know, issue. But then you know, there's this whole thing about, well, let's take things like, you know, the ability to, you know, forge metals or, you know, to observe the stars or something like, you know, cosmetics or whatever. Let's use those things and teach humanity how to do these things in such a way that it becomes self-destructive and idolatrous. So, the sin of the watchers that really this book is concerned about is how the watchers in second temple thinking get blamed for depravity. I mean, if you ask the average Christian, Hey, why is the world the way it is? Why is it such a mess? Mm -hmm. The answer you're going to get is, Oh, that's the fall. It's Genesis three. The original sin concept. Yeah. If you ask the, the same question to a, to a first century Jew, that's not the answer you would get. You would get, well, there's three reasons why the world is the mess that it is. Yeah, in Genesis 3, we have the beginning of divine rebellion, the beginning of human rebellion. We're estranged from God, and, and, and you know, now, now we're going to die because Eden is no more. So, we have a death problem here. That, that, that's bad. But we also have what happened in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. You know, and, and so, the depravity of humanity, again, it's, it's bent towards self-destruction is laid at the feet of the watchers. And, and this is why, I mean, we, we don't get all of that in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, but in Genesis 6, 5, we get the statement that every 
every imagination of the heart of, of, of man was only evil continually. And, and what you miss is you miss the backstory, uh, again, that has a Mesopotamian counterpart, but is actually preserved uh, in, in the Book of Enoch. Let me, let me just pause there. The, re- the way yeah. we know that, the simplest way to explain that is when you get to Second Peter and Jude, they refer to the angels that sinned, angels is plural, isn't that a profound observation? But you get angels that sinned, and there is no other candidate for a corporate angelic sin in the Old Testament. This is the only passage you can go to. People say, well, what about the third of the angels rebelling with Satan? Well, guess what? There is no such passage in the, Old, in the Bible until you get to the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation associates the third of the angels in combat, you know, with the forces of God, with the birth of the Messiah. It's very mm-hmm. clear. You just read through Revelation 12, right? There it is. So, this idea of a, of a primeval fall of a third of the angels, that actually comes from Milton's Paradise Lost, not the Bible. That, that's, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, you, you only have one candidate for the angels that sin, that's Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And then Peter and Jude both describe the angels that sin as being, you know, imprisoned and kept in chains of gloomy darkness. And Peter uses the, the verb tartarao to describe this in Greek. And that means sent to Tartarus. Well, that description doesn't exist anywhere in the Old Testament, but it does exist in Mesopotamian material. The idea of the offending in Mesopotamian story, they're called the Apkalu. And the story of the Apkalu accounts for every point of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. They're divine before the flood. Then after the flood, they're hybrid. You know, they're, 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 they're fathered by mortals. Okay, so you have this hybrid thing. They're also called giants. They're sent down to the abyss. Again, the bad place in the underworld as punishment by Marduk. I mean, every element of this is found in the Mesopotamian you know, milieu. And that tells us why Genesis 6, 1 through 4 was written in the first place. Because the Apkalu to the Mesopotamians are heroes. They're good guys. What they did was good because they're trying to preserve, you know, the, the knowledge that, that the gods had given to humankind and, and they want to save, you know, humanity. And, and boy, we're thankful that they did because this is why Babylon is the top dog, you know. Now, and the biblical version is like, now, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, what, what results from this is, you know, certain, you know, peoples that we've later in Israel's history are bent on Israel's destruction, the giant clans and all that stuff. Mm. And their disembodied spirits are demons. I mean, it, so the biblical writers like, you know, hold on fellas, you know, th- this is not really how to look at what happened here. And that's why you get Genesis six, one through four. So that Israelite readers would know this was a violation. This was sinister. This was evil. And, you know, in the Mesopotamian story, it's not a coincidence that, the skills that the Apkalu had, skills in astrology, skills in forging metals, skills in warfare, skills, you know, in seduction, you know, all of these things are applied in Enoch to the Watchers as instruments by which they use to corrupt humanity and make them even more depraved, to, to, to destroy them. It's, it's a program of self-destruction. So, we know when, when Peter and Jude come up with material that isn't in the Old Testament, but is in the Mesopotamian story and is in the Book of Enoch, we can see that the Book of Enoch preserved the original context for Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And it's really important. This is, this is what you call reading biblical literature in its own context. Yes. You're going back to primary sources. 
We're not filtering our Bible through Milton's Paradise Lost. Okay? <laughs> yeah. We are going back to primary sources. So that, that's the second reason why a Jew would say we're all screwed up. And then the third reason is, is what happens at, the, at Babel, Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, where the nations are assigned to, to lesser gods as a punishment. You know, humanity is, God divorces himself from humanity, puts the nations under, you know, lesser authorities who are supposed to be placeholders and administer the nations according to the good justice of, of the true God. But they don't do that. Psalm 82, we find out that instead, you know, they, they abuse their populations. In Deuteronomy 32, later on a few verses, we find out that these are the, this is the bunch that seduces the Israelites into idolatry. And, and all of that, again, look at that. That's Babel, Tower mm-hmm. of Babel. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is Babylonian in its context. This is why Babylon is a big deal in both Testaments. Babylon becomes a symbol and a metaphor for everything that's bad, <laughs> right. everything that causes chaos, everything that, that, that drives people away you know, from, from a, a good relationship with the true God. Every, you know, it's just... You know, why do you think Revelation has this mystery Babylon concept? Well, it, it's because Babylon is the bad place. Mm-hmm. What else would you call it? You know, <laughs> this is the perfect thing to call it because everybody knows what that is, uh, except for us, you know, because we're, we're so, we're divorced, you know, by millennia, you know, from, from this context. So, you'd get three, three answers. And, and in reversing Herman, I'm drilling down on the second one, uh, the Genesis 6, the Watchers thing. And, and because, look at it this way. If those, if that's what's bad, if that's what corrupts humanity, then logically, logically, when the Messiah shows up, he's not just here to fix the Genesis 3 problem, okay, the fall. He's here to fix all of these problems. Mm -hmm. He is the solution to rolling back, to reversing all of these problems, so that all that factored in that, that that threefold reason for depravity and 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 why the nations are against God and Israel and all the whole bit, all of that factors into the Jewish expectation of deliverance through the Messiah, and that's really what reversing Hermon is about. If you had that backstory in your head, as you read through the New Testament, certain things would pop out at you, certain phrases. Certain, you know, concepts would jump out at you and, and you, would, you would be compelled to read them in a little bit of a different way uh, so that, it, you know, you, you could see, well, okay, Paul wrote this, Matthew did this, Peter did that, the book of Revelation, John does that. If, you know, if I read that, what they say, in light of this paradigm, in light of this backstory, that is going to direct the way I think about that passage. And it's very evident that the biblical writers knew this story and they are dropping breadcrumbs you know, and leaving trails through what they wrote in the New Testament to get you to think like they're thinking and to give you a heads up, to alert you to what they're really trying to get at. The men of renown that you mentioned, uh, I guess Gilgamesh would have been one of those. Um, uh, yeah, it, some some it, of the heroes of in, in Babylonian Sumerian legend. See, Gilgamesh turns out to be a really pivotal figure uh, yeah. for this because Gilgamesh is mentioned by name in an Enochian text. And that, that Enochian text means books that aren't first Enoch, but that 
have a lot of first Enoch material in them. Yeah, it's just it's an academic term. But mm-hmm. the the Book of the Giants, also known from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's a name that the scholars give to it because there's there's giants in it. Okay, and Gilgamesh, <laughs> Gilgamesh is referred to by name in that text. So here you have think about it. You've got the name of the Mesopotamian giant Gilgamesh in a second temple Jewish manuscript. Okay, again, that, that deals with, with themes of, of First Enoch, the Enochian text. And again, it, it, he, let's, if, you go, if you consider Gilgamesh, he is called Lord of the Apkalu on a cylinder seal. Who were the Apkalu? Well, we just mentioned them a few minutes ago. Hmm. The Apkalu before the flood were, were totally divine. And then, you know, after the flood, they're, they're not. They're a mixture. They're a hybrid. And they all, you know, and Gilgamesh is, is their Lord. He's one of them. He's the best one. He's the biggest one. He's Gilgamesh after all. And he's, Gilgamesh is described as a giant. You know, we actually get his dimensions in cuneiform sources. You know, he, he's, he's like a Goliath figure, if we can use that analogy. And he's an, he's an Apkalo. He's a post-flood Apkalo. So, hybrid being, giant, hmm, you know, where have I seen this before? <laughs> there it is. It's Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So, Gilgamesh is a big deal. Um, and again, it's, it's very clear that the, the writer of First Enoch was very familiar with Mesopotamian material. But we weren't familiar with it in Western culture until the 19th century. Right, you know, because yep. of the the decipherment barrier, you know, mm-hmm. and this, I'm glad you mentioned that because you know I get the question all the time. Well, well, why didn't Martin Luther teach this, and why didn't Augustine teach this, and John Calvin? And look, it's not because they were dumb and Mike's smart. Okay, let, let's just clear the air right away. <laughs> it's not because Mike is so smart. It's because Mike has access to primary sources that they didn't. Right. This right. material is unknown, and if it is known. Nobody can read it until the 1800s. Yeah. You know, it, it's just that simple. We, we have material that they didn't, and that material is from the biblical world. The Abkalu, I guess they manifest themselves spiritually before the flood, but then after they um, manifest physically. Is that kind of, is that the gist of it? And then also, do they mate with human women as is described in the book of Enoch and in Genesis six. Yeah. They, there's, there's a particular, um, cuneiform text that gives a list of Apkalu. I don't know if you remember this, uh, from reading the book, Mm -hmm. but there's one that, that gives a a list of the Apkalu. And of course, you know, what do you do? What you have there is you have a name of a po- a post flood King and then an Apkalu name next to, next to him, because he's the one who, you know, he, this is the Apkalu that helped this king, you know, rule, you know, help, help make him a smart guy and make the right decisions and whatnot. So, the Apkalu prior to the flood are only referred to as divine beings. And then after the flood, you have this description that they are of human descent is, is the actual phrase that, that shows up in, in this particular tablet. And so, again, this, this tells scholars that something happened with the Apkalu that after the flood, they're now part human and part what they were, divine. So, you, you have that issue, and then you have the Apkalu, again, Gilgamesh is the primary example. You have the Apkalu, again, as, you know, I'll just use the word people, okay? You, again, the, 
Gilgamesh is described as two-thirds uh, divine, you know, one-third human. So, you have figures like Gilgamesh who are, again, the same percentage, and that, that, that's also the same percentage attributed to other Apkalu. The two-thirds thing, as scholars think, is significant because that's the Apkalu, two-thirds Apkalu, one-third hu- of human descent, and then you have Gilgamesh with the same two-thirds designation, and Gilgamesh is described as a giant uh, in, in Mesopotamian material. So, again, all of the elements, you know, I don't want to say mimic or mime because the Mesopotamian material is is the material to which the biblical writer is responding. He, you know, evidently the the biblical writer knows the story, and Genesis six one through four is offered as a theological polemic or corrective or, or you know, hey, it's a heads up. Yeah, th- this is the way it was, but this is not good. Mm-hmm. This is not a good situation. In fact, again, the, uh, as history runs its course. What comes out of this are our worst enemies, our worst nightmares. Again, the, the, the giant clans who are descended from the Nephilim, according to Numbers 13 um, and Deuteronomy 2 and 3, that, that you know, were bent on our destruction. So, you know, they, the, the biblical writer wants us to know, A, the outcome of this was really bad, <laughs> not something we should be thrilled about, and B, this was part of what the watchers did to help us destroy ourselves again, just to, to, to turn us into idolaters again, so that we would be driven from Yahweh to destroy our, our ourselves, you know, with the way we, we live and behave uh, warfare, again, immorality, all this sort of thing. Uh, e- either way that we are going to be divorced from the true God. And again, that that's what they want. But you're not going to get that impression just reading the Mesopotamian story. You're going to look at them and say, "Oh, aren't these wonderful guys?" Yeah, yeah. You know, look, look at all the look at look at how they saved civilization. It, oh, you know, yeah, aren't they wonderful guys started civilization in, in many yeah. ways. Uh, isn't there uh, their judgment uh, from Marduk? Isn't it mm-hmm. similar to the judgment of the Watchers and Enoch? Yeah, it is. That and that that's the other. I mean. Basically, you have a parallel for every point of this. Hmm. I mean, Marduk, I mean, if you remember the, the Mesopotamian story, I mean, the Apkalu are, you know, they're, they're not the main deities in Mesopotamia. I mean, they're, they're important, again, because they're perceived as great, you know, culture heroes. This is how scholars refer to them, because they, they bring civilization to humans. But when the, the, the bigger gods decide, you know, we're kind of sick of these people, these humans, and they make a lot of noise, and so let's send a flood to wipe them out, then the Apkala are like, well, good grief, you know, we, we invested all this time you know, into this <laughs> this project, you, you're, you're going to ruin my project, don't cancel our project. So, you know, they, they apparently, again, what, what we have with the text, you know, how else do you become hybrid? You know, you got you to gotta merge the species, you know, so to speak. Uh, so, you know, that's what they decide to do to try to, again, transmit physically, in, because humans are physical, they're embodied beings, but to transmit their knowledge and preserve it through the flood. Now, they pull that off, and then Marduk, who's the chief god, looks at the situation and says, you know, you guys suck, you know, <laughs> you should not have done this. You know, Marduk is unhappy. He's really ticked, in fact. And so, he sends the Apkalu 
to the abyss, you know, mm-hmm. and there's this, there's this line in, in the uh, era epic about, you know, send them to the abyss from which they will never return or, you know, something really ominous like that. Basically, you know, you know, you're, you're going to hell in a handbasket here. And so that's where they get sent. They get sent down to the deep, dark underworld and basically they're not heard from again. Now in the Enoch, you know, retelling or the Enoch, you know, story, and you also get glimpses of this in the old Testament. Again, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence in the Old Testament that you get scenes in Sheol in the underworld, like in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 32. You get scenes in the underworld where, guess who's there? Okay, it's not just the departed spirits of the human dead. It's the spirits of Rephaim, again, who are Anakim, Deuteronomy 2 and 3, and the Anakim come from the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. Again, it's no surprise that they're, they're there. They're, they're part of this mix, this matrix. So, the Old Testament, again, it gives you these little glimpses that, that these guys, you know, are down there, but it's in the, in the Second Temple Jewish literature and the New Testament where you get this sort of fleshed out more that, that these are the spirits in prison. Okay, you, you get the original offenders. All Jewish traditions agree. It, First Enoch and other Enochian texts, and even texts that you know wouldn't be classified Enochian. But when you when you come up with the angels that sinned idea, there's only one reference point. That's Genesis six one through four. The tradition is is unanimous. They are in the abyss. They are in the bad place. They are imprisoned. You know, up to quote Peter, in chains of gloomy darkness, in the underworld. You know, awaiting again the, the the quote time of the end or to the end of days, or something like that. You know, f- to the last generation. They're they're different phrases. I personally think it's a reference to the day of the Lord. Uh, I, I take Revelation nine. Uh, if you read the last chapter in the in reversing Hermon, I take Revelation nine as being a description of the release uh, of the Watchers, uh, basically to you know wreak havoc for a while before they're ultimately destroyed. Um, but again, you have you have a lot of the same imagery there: the abyss, the pit, you know, all that kind of stuff. Abaddon is a personification of Sheol, and you know, it it, it fits pretty well. Um, you know, it's not perfect, but again, that that's my predilection to to read Revelation nine as as their release before their annihilation. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about um, what Jesus does, the significance of him. And what he does on Mount Hermon, uh, especially like the transfiguration, some of the yeah. statements that he makes, um, like the, um, upon this rock, I will build my church, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which, you know, if, if you're yeah. Catholic has a whole different meaning, but. Yeah. Well, uh, frankly, if you're Protestant, it's a yeah. whole different meaning too. Um, yeah. What I, what I do in the book, like the first part is, is kind of what we've been talking about, sort of the setup, you know, like what, what. What's the context here for Hermon? And then the next three parts of the book are, okay, how does how is Hermon reversed in the Gospels and then the Epistles and then the Book of Revelation? So, in, in the Gospels, I mean, there are things about the birth of Jesus in terms of the, the, the circumstances and the timing. And again, I take Revelation 12 as celestial signs for the, the birth of the Messiah. If you take it that way, you wind up with Jesus sharing a birthday with Noah, according to Jewish tradition, also being born on Rosh Hashanah, again, the, the, the day of the inauguration of new kings. And there's, yeah, there's lots that, of images That was there. fascinating. Yeah, it, it, it's really neat stuff. So, there's birth circumstances that, again, would have signaled to a Jew 
the Messiah is here. You know, Hermon is going to be reversed. You know, the, finally, the, the person here who, who's going to to start rolling back the wickedness of of us, you know, of, of, of the way the world is. Uh, genealogy, you have hints, but you're, you're asking about, you know, what happens in the ministry. And I, I give, I think, if I remember right, three examples, but we'll take the two that, that you mentioned. So, there's, there's a part in the Gospels where, you know, they go up to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus and the disciples. And this is where you have the famous, you know, scene where Jesus asked, you know, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you know, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And, you know, Mike's paraphrase here, Jesus says, well, that's good, Peter. Don't get a big head because the spirit told you about that. You didn't figure that out yourself. So, you know, he, he says, you've, you know, you've said, well, that's the truth. And you're Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell. And unfortunately, most English translations have the gates of hell, you know, will not prevail against it. Now, there's a couple problems here. You know, Catholics say, well, the, thou art Peter upon this rock, Petros, Petra, you know, Jesus is founding the church on Peter, so we should all be Catholics. And Protestants say, no, 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 no. The, the, the rock here is like 1 Corinthians 10, where the rock is, is God in the Old Testament, so the rock is, is Christ. You know, it's not Peter, so we should not be Catholics. I don't think either of them are right. Mm-hmm. I think he's referring to where they're standing, okay, because where they're standing is significant. They're at the foot of Mount Hermon which in the Old Testament times was, again, the <clears throat> there was a cult of, of Baal there. In Jesus' day, it was dedicated to Zeus and to Pan. It's called Banyas in, in, in Jesus' day. In this region, this is in the region of Bashan, and if people who have read my book, The Unseen Realm, know that Bashan, of course, is one of the domains of, of the giants, the last of the Rephaim. There are two cities in this region, Ashtaroth and Edrai, that were known in Ugaritic texts, not even in, in biblical stuff, Ugaritic texts as the gates of hell. So, I mean, to me, I look at that and think, hey, that's probably a clue. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, this place has an, has an Old Testament history. Why, why, why not think about it in terms of the Old Testament? Because Jesus is a Jew, everybody else is a Jew here. I, you know, let's, like, do the math here. Right, right. So, again, I, I think when, when Jesus says, look, upon this rock I will build my church— He's talking about right here. This is where it begins, right here. This is where the, the program is, is going to you know, take hold. And again, the gates of hell, for again, for Greek grammatical terms, a, a better translation is the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. It's because there's no preposition there in the passive verb form and all that stuff. You can, you know, you can be bored with that later. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it, look how it changes it though. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, that, that sounds like the church is like, you know, cowering in the corner, taking a beating from hell and, oh, you know, we'll make it, we'll make it because we're the church, you know, it, it hurts, but we're going to make it. No, if you translate it the, the proper way, the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. It's the church administering the beating. Yeah. It's exactly opposite. And again, I think that's Jesus' point. We're going to take the gates of hell here. We're going to take the, the, the domain of Baal, Baal Zabul, which is Canaanite for Prince Baal. Baal Zabul, of course, becomes a title of Satan. Okay, we're, going to, we're, going to, we're right here on his turf, and we're going to make his turf his tomb. Okay, we are the ones administering the beating. And then the, the gospels say, well, you know, a few days later, they go up into the mountain. Well, there's only one mountain there. If you're at Caesarea Philippi, it's hard, kind of hard to miss. It's like right on top of you. 
and it's Mount Hermon. So what, what happens when they go up into Mount Hermon? That's the transfiguration. Okay, and it's like Jesus revealing himself on the very mountain that everybody who's there with him associates with the watchers. Again, the first problem, Genesis 3 problem, Lord of the dead. Well, we just went down there and poked Satan in the eye, and that was a good laugh. And now we're here at Genesis 6. Okay, Genesis 6 territory, the watchers, and Jesus is revealing himself as if to say, here I am, fellas, do something about it. And then there's this other episode I cover in the book where he goes into Gentile territory. There you get the reclaiming of the nations idea, the Genesis 11 you know, thing. So the, the gospels actually hit all three of the problems. Again, to telegraph that Jesus is, I'm, I'm not just the, 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 the Messiah for Israel. I'm here not just to reclaim Israel as mine. I'm here because it's all mine. Every last inch of it is mine. And, and, and the gospels actually say when he does this at, at, at Banyas, you know, Caesarea Philippi, and up into Mount Hermon, after it's done, the gospels actually say, from this point forward, he began to teach his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and die. And they're freaked out. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? You know, what, what's this talk about? Like, you got to go to Jerusalem and die. It's like we just kind of, you know, hit, put, punch Satan in the nose, and now we're punching the watchers in the nose. This is awesome. And right. now you're talking about dying? Like, are you nuts? <laughs> and of course, this is when he rebukes Peter. You know, get behind me, Satan. You know, and I take that as, as an adversary. Get, get behind me or else you'll be an adversary. I guess that's what Satan means. But anyway, look, look what happens. They turn, they go back to Jerusalem, then they have the triumphal entry, and a week later he's dead. Mm-hmm. Mission accomplished because Jesus knows something that none of them know or none of them do. They don't understand yet. This is what has to happen for him to win. This is what has to happen for the Genesis 3 problem to be cured because you can't have a resurrection unless you first have a death. So we got to go and die, you know, for the sins of the world. We're going to, we're going to rise from the dead. Again, that, that, and that, you know, eventually, you know, the, the spirit is going to come. The Spirit is going to empower us, the new covenant language, again, to, to fight against sin. There you have the depravity issue. The gospel goes out, not just to the Jew, but also to the nations, you know, with the ministry of Paul. I mean, this is the linchpin event. But they don't, get, they don't even get it after he's raised from the dead. There they are in the upper room, you know, and the risen Christ is staying in front of him, and they're like, uh. <laughs> yeah, the, the doubting Thomas story. <laughs> right, and, well. and, and, the, and the text actually says, he had to open their minds so that he would understand. And, and again, I don't want to make, him, make the disciples sound like morons, okay? The, the issue is, and again, if you read Unseen Realm, you know what I think about this. I think that prophecy was deliberately cryptic. Because I take what Paul says seriously in 1 Corinthians 2, that had the rulers of this world known, and that's a, that's a phrase he uses for the powers of darkness elsewhere, you know, and Satan is one of those rulers. He's called the ruler of this world. But had the rulers of this world known you know, what the result of, of the crucifixion would have been, Paul says they never would have crucified him. Mm-hmm. Again, they're not, they're not idiots, but they didn't know. And they didn't know because they're not supposed to know. It's never spelled out clearly in the Old Testament that the story of the Messiah, again, is fractured, fragmented in, in dozens of places. And, and it's only after the fact that they can look back on the story with the benefit of 2020 hindsight and, you know, of course, the spirit, you know, helping them out. It's only after the fact that they can look back and say, okay, okay, that's what this meant. 
okay, I see the analogy between this thing and that thing. They, they piece it together after the fact, and that is the way it was designed. And it wasn't collected all in one book at the time. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. It was fragmented by, by, on purpose. So, I, again, I'm not, I don't want to say the disciples were morons, but I, I, I do kind of chuckle every time I read it, you know, and I guess that's because I have the benefit of the hindsight. Right. But, it's like right, right. Even he's standing right there in the room. Well, let's 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 talk about Paul a little bit because I want to hit on this thing about the um, the head cut. The head. The I, I head. Was gonna say I know yeah, what you're gonna. The head. Up. The head coverings, and there's other things in Paul too that you mentioned. But this is the this I think is the main one because this is almost like a direct reference to the story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In Genesis six. Yeah, and and let me let me caution your listeners. You know, if you. I did a whole podcast episode on the head covering in in 1 Corinthians 11. I'm trying to remember what what the number was. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. But if if you go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and look through the episodes, or or you can Google it, Naked Bible Podcast, and then put head covering in, you're going to get this episode. If you read this in Hermon, reversing Hermon, or you listen to it, uh, if you listen to it, especially, you, you might want to excuse the kids from the room. But this is going to sound like the craziest thing you've ever heard. Oh, yeah. Unt- until you're on the other side of it. And, and, it, and all of a sudden, it's like, wow, if they were really thinking like this, this chapter makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you're going to you know? love this, Rob, especially since you have long hair. <laughs> Okay, so so in a nutshell, what what's going on in First Corinthians eleven, and this is based on a series of of peer reviewed journal articles, and I, I you know I give everybody the breadcrumb trails like like I like to do, so they can go look it up, you know. But there's a, there's a term there in First Corinthians eleven when he gets into the head covering. It's the part where he says that the woman's hair is given to her as a head covering. Okay, and the Greek term there given to her as a covering is parabolion in Greek. Now, somebody, again, a scholar, I guess, who has nothing better to do, actually, his, his name's Troy Martin, and his specialty is Greco-Roman medical text. So, he's like the perfect guy for this. He happened to notice that parabolion, the same term, is used widely in Greco-Roman te- medical texts for testicles. Okay, and again, this sounds like bizarreville like what in the world her hair is given to her for a testicle like what in the world is going on here well again their ser- his series of articles i think were fascinating because he goes back into the classic classical greek text the medical text including people that we know like hippocrates you know mm-hmm. the hippocratic oath these right. were the authorities of the day and and here here in a nutshell is is what what the idea is they believed uh, at this time that a woman, her hair was an aid to fecundity, to the ability to have children. Again, which to us sounds nutty because we know about genetics and all this. We can make, you know, we can make babies in a Petri dish now. Well, they couldn't do that. They, didn't, they don't know about this stuff. But they, they thought that a woman's hair assisted her in becoming pregnant. So when a man and a woman had sex, they believed her hair sort of function to draw up the semen into her womb so that it would it would assist her in becoming pregnant. The longer her hair was, the more 
suction power that you know her hair had to draw the semen up from the pelvic region into her womb and then plant the seed plant the child and this is why it was it was wonderful for a woman to have the long hair because chances are you know she's going to have children and we love children children are a big deal it was also conversely why it was a shame for a man to have long hair because a man's job was to eject the semen not to retain it within his body you actually have Greco-Roman medical texts that use the hair length as fertility tests and infertility tests, you know, for women in these ancient texts. So, you know, Martin goes through the whole thing. And I remember the first time I read this, and I, again, at the beginning, I thought, this is insane. How did, how did this get published? <laughs> <laughs> but then when I read it, it's like, holy cow, you know, this just makes sense. I can't believe it, but I, you know, it make, and I actually wrote to him and, and, you know, thanked him for his article. And I asked him this question. I said, now your article doesn't mention anything about Paul's line in the midst of this, that, you know, about the head covering. You remember, you know, it's like, let, let me back up. If you think this way, you, of course, when Paul says, Hey, when you go to church and pray, you should have your head covered women. Well, if you think it's part of your sexual prowess, your ability to, to conceive, well, it becomes an issue of modesty. And then later on, you know, when he talks about that the, the hair is giving to her for her glory and, and a covering, and again, you know, this whole idea of, you know, immodesty is still in play because, you know, we have another thought added. Paul said, now you should also, not just because you're in church, you know, keep your hair covered, but you should also do it because of the angels. Mm-hmm. Which we look at and go, you know, we think, oh, it's just a throwaway line or like, you know, Paul must have lapsed into sleep or, you know, he had, he ate something that didn't agree with him. You know, 1 Corinthians eleven ten. 10, you, you know, th- this is a symbol of authority to, you know, t- on your head, you know, because of the angels. And the idea, again, is still modesty that, that you need to be careful, you know, what you do while you're in church. You also need to, again, you know, have, you know, the, the, the man that you're with, you know, again, uh, presuming that this is your husband, he is, again, someone that you need to do this to, sh- to show loyalty to, to show fidelity to, uh, and, and to, again, cryptically, you need to let it, let it be known that you're spoken for, you know, that, that sort of kind of mentality. And so, I asked Martin, I said, now, do you think that Paul put this line in about the angels because of the Enoch? the Enoch's Watcher story. And he wrote back to me and he said, absolutely. Now, for this particular chapter in the book, I I used a different article by Lauren Stuckenbrook, who's also an Enoch specialist. And he does a really nice job of going through the alternative opinions. And he winds up at the same place. That apparently Paul, by issuing this warning, this one little line in the midst of this passage about sexual stuff, you know, it's not a prophecy that Genesis 6 is going to happen again. Paul's not saying it is happening again, but apparently he was concerned that it could. And so he's like, we don't ever want to see this happen again because we know how it affected humanity in terms of, of our depravity. So you better have yourself, you know, covered when you need to. Yes, your hair is for a covering and all that. It's going to help you, you know, sexually and blah, 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 blah. You need to be modest. 
You need to, to, to be loyal to your husband. Again, you need to not do anything that would, you know, be a violation of, of, of the bond with your husband or, or flaunt your sexuality or do anything like that because of the angels. In other words, it's, it's a warning. It's, it's a heads up. It's a, it's a boy, we just don't ever want to see this again. And, and again, that sounds like absolute crazy talk. Again, because we come from a different world. But if, you know, if there's a theme to what I do, like an unseen realm, and that now this book, Reversing Hermon, you either believe that the biblical writer wanted, the biblical writer wrote, wrote what he wrote to the audience that he wrote it, wanting to be understood or not. Mm. Do you really under, want to understand the scripture? If you say you do, then you need to have the first century Jew or the Israelite, whatever you know is relevant in whatever passage, you need to have those people in your head. Now, you can still get the gospel without it. You can still get, you know, important points of doctrine without it. You know, there, there's some things that are just hard to, to miss. But if you really want to understand scripture and how passages fit together, you need to understand the conceptual world that they're in, how they think. And that means you got to take scripture in its own context, not the one you impose on it, not your denominational tradition, but the one, the context that produced the thing. And that frightens people on occasion. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I do get the email that you're freaking me out or this is heresy or no, it's just the Bible. <laughs> it's just the Bible. Uh, you know, and again, I, I've said many times on many shows, maybe on this one at one point, but I, I'm just no longer going to protect people from their Bible. Yeah. I think, I think it's a disservice. Um, you know, it, it wasn't given to people so that you, you couldn't understand it or, or, or that there, there's just parts in it that, that God, you know, you know, doesn't think that you should be able to understand that. That's just, that's nonsense. It makes sense. It makes sense because you have to have it in the context of the time and you have mm-hmm. to have it in the context of the culture. Rob, yeah. was there anything that you wanted to ask? I was going to ask if we could talk about Samson instead. <laughs> it's a good positive well actually you story. know what two things that come to mind there because you know the whole long hair that that was a disgrace for men to have long hair well you know jesus is uh portrayed classically mm-hmm. as having long hair yep. but i suppose yep. at the time i guess that he really wouldn't have had long hair then yeah if, if you're a i mean there's a couple there's a couple ways to look at it now paul you have you have Gentile culture, you have Jewish culture, okay? Now, Paul, of course, is writing to a Gentile audience. Mm-hmm. And Paul is very well read, you know, we, because you know, he's Paul. He was educated under Gamaliel, but he's quoting Greek poets all the time. You know, I mean, he, he, he has the best of both worlds. You know, he's and very educated. He was a Roman citizen, so. And he was a Roman yeah. citizen. Yeah, he, he knows, he knows his, his stuff pretty, pretty thoroughly. So, on the one hand— you know, there is a question of well, would it would a Jew have viewed this kind of material again? Would, would their medical knowledge have either been the same, or would they have bothered to read, you know, what you know a Gentile physician, you know, like Hippocrates would say? 
And it's hard to know, again, how much they would have imbibed in that literature. It probably de- depended on, on how, I hate to use this sort of modern Christian word for it, but how worldly you thought it was. Um, it's, it's hard to tell. Well, the one thing we, we, can, we can know for sure, though, is that they didn't have advanced medical knowledge you know, beyond the Gentile, and both parties, both Jew and Gentile, do use the same planting metaphor uh, for having a children and, and assessing infertility. There's no such thing as male infertility at this time in either culture, for instance. And that's because right. of, the, of the idea that, that well, look, look at the book of Hebrews, this idea that, you know, <clears throat> um, Levi pays tithes you know, to Melchizedek because he was in the loins of his father. I mean, this idea that you can have a whole human person inside a male, mm-hmm. we know is it's not correct. You, that If you care about the biblical definition of personhood, and you should care about that if you care about things like abortion, then that statement there is not tenable. I mean, it, it's just, it's a non-scientific statement. But, you know, okay, that that's what it was. They believed that that life resided in the male, and it was deposited, it was planted in the woman, you know, kind of like seed in the garden, and then it takes hold and grows, and then, you know, we have a birth. Um, so that if, if a woman couldn't have children, she had a problem, or it, either God was cursing her, or there's just something wrong with her. There was no sense that, that there could be a, a male problem, because you're, de- hey, I'm depositing the seed, what else can I do? You know, it, it that's just the way it was, you know, in both cultures. So, well, it even you know, goes it, to the modern era because Henry the Eighth blamed his wives for not giving him sons. Yeah, there, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, in the time that we have left, Doctor Heiser, I know you just got to get going, but um, I do want to say that you were going to be at a conference mm-hmm. in Roswell, New Mexico, coming up very soon. Uh, at the end of June, we are also going to be there with our well, oh. our common friend Guy Malone. Okay, we we'll have and, to introduce yourself. Oh yeah, well, I'll, <laughs> I definitely will. <laughs> but uh, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about that and what you might be doing there and speaking talking about there. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do other stuff besides biblical studies. You know, straight biblical studies. That I mean, that's my training. I, I'm a biblical scholar, but you know, I, I really care about pop culture, post-Christian culture, internet culture. And for a lot of people, their belief, you know, their, their beliefs, their, their substitute for theism, their substitute for Christianity, uh, their reality is really formed on uh, beliefs about, you know, extraterrestrials, uh, you know, ancient astronauts, that sort of thing. And, and this is, this is hugely popular. I mean, ancient aliens, it, I shudder every time I think of this, but it's in its 11th season, which just seems <laughs> unthinkable, but it is, um, you know, and, and so I, I, I try, you know, to be, you know, a, a voice in that sphere to get people who this is their faith, this is their worldview, this is their religion, to, to at least get them to the table to try to have a, a discussion about spiritual things and maybe to get them to, to think better about the Bible and whatnot. So I, I have been in Roswell a few times to speak at conferences, and I'm going to be there again uh, the whole time. I think it's I think the dates are 29 and 30 June and then July 1st and 2nd. So I, I, I think I speak once each day on, uh, you know, 
different topics like, you know, could Christianity sustain an extraterrestrial disclosure and, you know, why, why ancient aliens really isn't helping you follow, you know, UFO studies, <laughs> you know, just a whole variety of, of things, you know, what sort of evaluating, I think one talk is evaluating um, the logic uh, of, uh, of, you know, the defense of the extraterrestrial worldview. In other words, what, what, what's the factual material as opposed to the, to the bluster, you know, about, uh, about it, but I'm interested in it. I don't view, uh, extraterrestrials, if there really are extraterrestrials, I don't view them as an inherent threat uh, to Christianity, uh, but I do think stuff like alien abduction and, and, and narratives, what alien con, you know, aliens supposedly tell people, which tends to be very anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I don't think that's the real deal. I think it's something spiritual. Uh, and, and incidentally that that's reflected in something that, uh, this is like breaking news on, on, on your show here. Uh, my employer, uh, the company is called Faith Life, we're the makers of Logos Bible software. They have created a 90-minute documentary of me talking about alien stuff, you know, why I do this and what, what the issues are, specifically spiritually, religiously, theologically. And it's called uh, Aliens and Demons. Now, that is now, or at least as, as of April 14th, will be accessible to the public, at least the trailer will. What, what the company wants to do is they've launched a streaming TV channel. So if people go up to, um, it's, a, it's a clunky address, maybe I could just give it to you as a link, but it's the word store.faithlife.com and then slash aliens dash and dash demons, aliens and demons with, with dashes in between there. Uh, you'll, you'll find uh, the trailer, and it, it's pretty slick, I have to admit it. I mean, they, they really have spent a lot of time on this. The trailer is really, it's cool. It's pretty slick, but they want people to watch the trailer and subscribe to the channel. It's five bucks a month or four ninety five or whatever it is. Then you can watch the whole thing. And there's a lot of other content on the, on the channel, a lot of teaching content. We have scholars from all over the world, you know, come into our, our campus, our company, and record content, record uh, stuff that they would teach in, in seminary, and you can get access to, to that stuff. So they want to try to kick it off with this and do something a little bit different that might appeal to pop culture. So Aliens and Demons is the, uh, is the title of the film. Well, excellent. I'll, I'll have to sit down and watch that. And um, when we're at the conference, mm -hmm. uh, maybe we could get you to come in and sit down for an like an in-person sure. interview about it. I think that yeah. would be awesome. Yeah, I've, I've I've told them. I mean, they're doing the streaming thing, but I said, you know, I'm I'm doing the Roswell conference, so it'd be a good idea to to put this on DVDs, and I can I can right. take some with me. And and so they, yeah, they've agreed to produce that. I mean, we we may have we'll probably have something there, a laptop or something to play the trailer. But uh, yeah, we we should have DVDs of it there too. And again, okay. I don't I don't get anything from it. it. I don't get royalties or anything that could because this you know, my salary covers you know this this kind of effort. But uh, I'm I'm glad they they took it on because I I think it's important. Well, excellent, Doctor Heiser. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, where can people get Reversing Herman and mm -hmm. your and your other your other awesome books? Yeah, any, reversing Hermon you can get on Amazon. Uh, a lot of people have sent me pictures of they found it in their local Barnes and Nobles, so you could check that out too. But definitely on Amazon, and you know, all my books you can get on Amazon.com. Uh, absolutely, and I, I highly recommend them if you really want to understand the Bible and kind of like 
its cultural and its linguistic context, Dr. Heiser is your guy. <laughs> so, Dr. <laughs> Heiser, thank you so much. Uh, stay on the line for us. We're going to close this section out. And, sure. guys, we'll be back at, to close this mega opus of a show on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> We are. And, and wiser for it. Yes, we are. Wiser with Heiser. Wiser with Heiser. That's why I always say. <laughs> Heiser, wiser. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what did you think about that, Rob? I just want to kind of get like your feedback on it, because I know, you know, you've studied a lot of stuff, but this usually isn't your thing, is the biblical stuff. It's not. And I mean, I you know, I've read the Bible. I You know, I grew up going to, to Sunday school and stuff, so I, I have enough context to understand what he's talking about which and it, it's always fascinating having having him on because he's you know what like a um he's got a degree in like ancient semitic language yeah he's or, a or real like that. he's and, a real scholar he's a real professor it's him and i think of people that we've had on the people that are actual academics is him and furnish they're actual doctors they're actual both actual phds well dr future is a phd too so i guess i gotta include him but <laughs> he doesn't like teach at a college or anything. Right, right. But he's I mean, it's it's always it's really fascinating to hear somebody take these stories and you know, some of these like like famous lines and stuff from the Bible that we all know and and break them down based on like the um the semantics of it and mm-hmm. also the um the society Mm-hmm. And and put it all like into just a totally different context, and it it really does fascinate me. As much as like I'm not incredibly interested in in biblical studies in themselves, this is this is still fascinating from just like a historical and social standpoint. And see, I'll make this point. I, I think what's really interesting is to tie some of this stuff that he's talking about, especially with the Apkalu and the Watchers and the incursion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the transgression, all those things that happened. I think there's a tie-in with the stuff that Randall Carlson works on and Laird Scranton, uh, all these other people that we've talked about with like ancient civilizations. Right. You know, I, I think that there's something there the, to Mesopotamian that. stuff or... Well, even maybe like the whole concept of before the flood and what that means. I know you really, I mean, with Randall, especially you can get really deep in that with him. Oh yeah. But, uh, so I think that there's definitely a connection with that stuff and the kind of the concept of quote unquote Atlantis. Although I really hate to call it that I much more prefer like an ancient forgotten civilization. Right. But I think, I think Atlantis is more the, the fictionalized version of, yeah. Yeah. Something that's very, very possible. And then the ancient gods and the equ- equation with the fallen angels. Mm-hmm. And there, there's so many connections that you can make. So, 
I ran across this as we were talking, and I, I mean, I read this in the book, but I thought that this would be interesting to read to end the show. Uh, this is, we're going to read out of the book of Enoch. Oh, okay. Um, there's a lot of metal kind of names in here. Like, like <laughs> a metal band could, like several metal bands could get their names from just these few paragraphs. I'll do my best Luke voice. So, so oh, dude, oh, man, that's awesome, oh, bro. Man, that's brutal. Totally brutal, brutal. man. We'll make a grindcore album. <laughs> First Enoch 6. And when the sons of men had multiplied in those days, beautiful and comely daughters were born to them. And the watchers, the sons of heaven, saw them and, and desired them. And they said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the daughters of men, and let us beget for ourselves children. And Simeaza, their chief, said to them, I fear that you will not want to do this deed, and I alone shall be guilty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and let us all bind one another with a curse, that none of us turn back from this counsel until we fulfill it and do this deed. Then they all swore together and bound one another with a curse. And they were all of them, two hundred, who descended in the days of Jared onto the peak of Mount Hermon. And they called the mountain Hermon because they swore and bore bound one another with a curse on it. And these are the names of their chiefs. Simeaza, this one was their leader. Artikov, second to him. Rimashel, third to him. Kokobal, fourth to him. Armuhamal, fifth to him. Ramal, sixth to him. Daniel, seventh to him. Zikal, eighth to him. Barakal, ninth to him. Azael, tenth to him. Armani, 11th to him, Material, 12th to him, Ananel, 13th to him, Sedawal, 14th to him, Samshial, 15th to him, Sarial, 16th to him, Tumial, 17th to him, Turial, 18th to him, Yamial, 19th to him, Yahadial, 20th to him. These are the chiefs of tens. First Enoch 7. These and all the others with them took for themselves wives from among them such as they chose, and they began to go into them and to defile themselves through them and to teach them sorcery and charms. Sorcery? (coughs) Sorcery. Oh, my God. And to reveal to them the cutting of roots and plants, and they conceived from them and bore to them great giants. And the giants beget Nephilim, and to the Nephilim were born Iliad, and they were growing in accordance with their greatness." They were devouring the labor of all the sons of men, and men were not able to supply them. And the giants began to kill men and to devour them. And they began to sin against the birds and beasts and creeping things and the fish and to devour one another's flesh. And they drank the blood. Then the earth brought accusation against the lawless ones. First Enoch 8. Aziel taught men to make swords of iron and weapons and shields and breastplates and every instrument of war. He showed them metals of the earth and how they should work gold to fashion it suitably, and concerning silver to fashion it for bracelets and ornaments for women. And he showed them concerning antimony and eye paint and all manner of precious stones and dyes. And the sons of men made for themselves and for their daughters, and they transgressed and laid astray the holy ones. And there was much godlessness upon the earth, and they made their ways desolate. Simiaza taught spells and the cutting of roots. Ermani taught sorcery for the loosing of spells and magic and skill. Barakel taught the signs of the lightning flashes. Kokobal taught the signs of the stars. Zekel taught the signs of the shooting stars. Artikoff 
taught the signs of the earth. Samsiel taught the signs of the moon. Sariel taught the, taught the signs of the moon. And they all began to reveal mysteries to their wives and to their children. And as men were perishing, the cry went up to heaven. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you need to put like some music or something behind me for that. Oh yeah. Something, Cause you know, like, you know, like a little charm, the water, Aaron, David, we, we should get him <laughs> to read that. It'd be like really powerful. So yeah, there's like about 50 metal names. So guys, t- 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 take your pick in that one. <laughs> but that's that's fascinating though. That's that's utterly fascinating. You when you when I read that I can see why something like the book of Enoch would have been left out of the Bible because it's just so damned weird. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what the cutting of roots has to do. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Herb, herbalists, I have no like, idea. Uh, harvesting potatoes. Yeah, I I have no idea. So basically everything that his civilization was taught by the fallen watcher angels. Huh. Uh, guys, next time we're going to continue in this vein. Um, we have Joe Jordan coming on, who's also going to be in Roswell with us at Guy Malone's conference. And we're going to talk about his work with the CE4 research. And we're going to talk about how people that have had alien abductions have been ending those in the name by calling on the name of Jesus. So we're continuing with the religious theme for a little while, but we'll get into some really heavy pagan occult stuff soon. I'm I'm pretty sure <laughs> I've got some lined up for y'all. So Rob, tell us everybody where they can uh, be a patron and also uh, all those other good information. Yeah, check out our Patreon account at uh, patreon.com slash conspiranormal. There's a lot of you already. We want to thank you. Uh, there's different tiers you can sign up for, um, ranging from just being a part of the community and seeing the various posts there up to, like, you know, getting a t-shirt or free wallpapers or just listening to our once a month uh, special bonus episodes. Uh, and again, that's at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. If you just want to contribute a one-time c- contribution, you can go to our website at conspiranormal.com. There's a donate button there. Um, and if you don't want to spend money, we totally get that. And you still want to support the show, a five-star rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to it. We also really, really appreciate those. So thanks, guys. I thought I would leave us with this. Uh, I just ski scrolling through my Facebook that uh, a man turned himself into the FBI for killing Abraham Lincoln in 1865. About time. Yeah. So I don't know what that's all about. I wonder if that story is true or not. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks so much. We'll be back next time on Conspiranormal. Luke, you got something to say? Oh, yeah. He's on here. Middle.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.